Good morning. Everyone hear me all right? Great. All right, so I was feeling really good about this sermon. Um, As many of you know, uh, Chelsea, my wife, and I just had our third child, a little baby girl, uh, on Monday. So we are pretty excited about that. And the week off of work really gave me some extra time to, to dive into the book of Esther and, uh, and, and, and kind of construct an overview of it that I'd like to share with you today. I was feeling great about the sermon until around 1.30 a.m. last night, and I was reading a Charles Spurgeon sermon, and uh, as many of you know, he's called the Prince of Preachers. I had no idea he had a, uh, a sermon on Esther, and I, I kid you not, within the first, uh, the first line that I read, the first sentence, Charles Spurgeon is, is addressing the audience, and he says, it is impossible to cover Esther in one sermon. And my heart just sunk. I was like, oh, wow, I guess we're doing the impossible tomorrow. (laughs) So Esther is one of two books in the Old Testament that was named after woman. Uh, There are four books in the Old Testament that are not directly quoted in the New Testament, and Esther is one of those. Because of that fact, and another fact that I'm going to share with you a little bit later, Many biblical scholars have debated on whether or not Esther belongs in the canon. My goal today with you is to reinforce that, yes, Esther belongs in the Word of God. And not only does it belong in the Word of God, but it is beneficial for the Christian in the 21st century to take a look at Esther for themselves and to study it and to know the... the, the uh, context that Esther was written in. A little bit of background. Only the end of the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, and the prophet Malachi record later Old Testament history. So this is right up there with the end of the Old Testament canon. After this, we see 400 years where God goes silent I believe God wanted Esther to be at this point for a specific reason, because he was preparing his people for these 400 years of silence before the Messiah came. The book takes place during the height of the Persian Empire. The empire was founded by Cyrus the Great, and if you remember Cyrus the Great, he was the one who was responsible for overthrowing the Babylonian Empire. Remember Daniel and the writing on the wall. That's a saying that we say, it's, it's the writing on the wall. Well, we have that saying because of a biblical story about Daniel. And he sees this writing on the wall, and it says that the king of Babylon at the time was going to be overcome by the Persians. And that's exactly what happened. During the reign of Ahuzeres, who's going to be our uh, king ruling in Persia, During the time of Esther, during his reign, the Persian Empire stretched over 3,000 miles east and west, making it the largest empire on the face of the world. When taking in Esther as a whole work, it's helpful for us to think about Esther as an invisible chess match between God and Satan, between the forces of good and the forces of darkness. The first chapter of Esther is summarized like this. Ahuzeres, 
is named 175 times in, in the entire book, and he is better known to his English speakers as Xerxes, or even Xerxes the Great. Our story takes place very early on in the king's reign over Persia. Darius the Great, the father of Ahuserus, was responsible for fortifying the empire. He was known as a great builder. Several times during his reign, he attempted to conquer Greece, failing miserably each time. Perhaps this is what prompted his son, Ahuserus, to later attempt the same. The setting of the story takes place in the winter residence of the king, a city known at the time as Susa, located in modern-day Iran. We open with a great feast, a feast that took place for 180 days. This was in order to show the royal pomp of the king. After the king was satisfied with his self-indulgence during the 180-day feast, where he showed his greatness to the surrounding uh, city-states. He held a seven-day feast in Susa, his winter residence, for the residents of Susa, both rich and poor. Now listen to the description of this feast. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cord of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were so served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. In other words, drink as much or as little as you desire. Now, when the feasting had reached its conclusion and the king's heart was merry with wine and strong drink, he ordered his queen, Queen Vashti, to be brought before the nobles so that he might show her beauty to all of those in attendance. Now, I'm not sure what was going through Vashti's mind or the king's mind, but maybe in the Middle East, in ancient Iran, the modest, modesty standards were similar to what they are in modern Iran. But whatever the case, Vashti refused the king's request. At this very public and humiliating show of disrespect, the king became enraged. He gathered his wise men and asked for their counsel. Now these wise men, we're gonna hear about them a couple times, they're only wise in name. They're not wise in their insight. And you'll see the insight that they give to the king. The wise men moved by fear for themselves, I believe, gave the king this advice, command a royal edict to go out and declare that Queen Vashti is never again allowed to enter into the presence of the king. For the wise men feared that if Queen Vashti got away with public disrespect of her husband, that they wouldn't be able to control the wives. They their own wives the way they wanted to. They were terrified of a feminist uprising, in other words. The king agrees and puts his queen away. Now after these things, according to the history we have provided to us from Greek historians, 
I believe King Ahuserus moved to take vengeance on ancient Greece and conquer them once and for all. Remember, his father was humiliated in Greece several times. Xerxes, or Ahuserus, boasted an army of anywhere between 70 to 300,000 men, while the Spartan army could barely muster up 300 Spartans and a little over 7,000 slaves and forced fighters. This is the mighty battle at Thermopylae that you may be familiar with. Over the course of the battle, it is recorded by Greek historians that Spartans lost 4,000 men, while Xerxes lost 20,000. And that was just the beginning of his defeat in Greece. Battle after battle was lost. Whether it was fought on land or over sea, the Greeks proved to be the superior force. It was on his way back from this humbling defeat that I believe Queen Vashti entered back into his mind, and he remembered what he had done to her. Now the wise men, who I believe had their best interest in mind, for remember it was under their counsel that they put Queen Vashti away, decided to come up with a plan, and the plan was this. They would order a beauty pageant across all 3,000 miles of Persia. They would bring the king the most beautiful women in the land, and he would have his choice for a new queen. This is where we pick up in chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yar, the son of Shmi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai, took her as his own daughter. Mordecai is Esther's older cousin, and he has decided that he is going to take care of her, just as a father would take care of her. A little bit of background on Mordecai's family being taken away is found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, verses 24 through 26 and 30. This is what the Lord says to Jeremiah the prophet. As I live declares the Lord, through Jeconiah. Remember, that was the man who's carried away. This is before this happened. This is a prophecy in the Old Testament. Through Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear it off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. And verse 30 says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his day, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. This was bad news for the Jews. Remember the promise that God gave to King David. 
God promised that one day there would come a king who wasn't just any king. He was going to be a righteous king. And he was going to do away with sin and oppression and evil once and for all. He was going to be the king of kings, the lord of lords. But the promise was through the line of David. And God had apparently cursed the line. For he said Jeconiah was to be as childless, that no one from his line would sit on the throne again. The Jews are carried away. They spend 70 years in exile. Then some of them come back to their homeland, led by Zerubbabel. But some stay. Some choose to stay. And some don't necessarily have a choice, but they stay as well. That's where we find Mordecai and Esther. They're Jews living in a foreign land. Now Esther, whether of her own volition or not, I'm not sure, is entered into this beauty pageant, her stunning beauty and simple charm when favor with the man who had charge over the women. She is given six months of beautifying with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. Ladies, how's that sound? Six months of oil and myrrh and six months of spices. Something your husband can work up to. At the end of the year-long spa treatment, the judging begins. One by one, the women are brought before the king. Each woman in the pageant is given a direction to come bearing a gift for the king. When it's Esther's turn, she only bears the gift that the king's servant recommends to her. We continue the story in verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And when Esther was taken to King Ahuzeres, Remember, he's going to decide, is Esther going to be my queen or am I going to set her aside as a lesser wife? Into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Soon after, Queen Esther was crowned queen of Persia, it seems Mordecai, her, her cousin, was promoted to some sort of official within the court. Mordecai made a habit of sitting at the king's gate. I'm not sure if it was to check on Esther or if it, this was his duty. But either way, he was at the king's gate and he heard a plan to assassinate King Ahuzeres. Mordecai reports this plan to Queen Esther. Queen Esther reports it to her husband, the king. And it is recorded in the book of memorable deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. After these things, King Ahuzeres promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set him on the throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king has so commanded him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Now Haman plays a very important role in this story. Haman plays the role of the Antichrist. When I say Antichrist, I mean someone who is moved by the powers of Satan. A man who is influenced by Satan to do the will of darkness. We see this picture that Jesus gives of the coming Antichrist, okay, in Haman. We also see him 
in apocryphal writings, such as the Maccabees, um, where we see Antichius IV, who ruled 300 years after King Ahuserus. He was famous for his persecution of the Jews, and he declared himself God in the rebuilt temple of God. There are only two feasts given outside the Mosaic Law. One of the feasts is Purim, which was a result of what happened in this story, Esther. The other feast is Hanukkah, which is a result of what happened in the book Maccabees. Now, Esther uses Antichius IV as an example of what the Antichrist is going to look like when he talks about the abomination of desolation coming into the place where he should not be. So we see that Jesus can see in the Jews' history pictures of Antichrist, and we know that we see pictures of Jesus Christ all throughout the Old Testament. So I believe that Haman is a picture, a blurry picture of what the Antichrist is going to look like. Genesis 3.15 is an important verse to keep in mind. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Remember, Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden and God curses the serpent. He curses the woman and he curses the man. Part of this curse was enmity between the offspring of Eve and those who choose to follow Satan in his darkness. We see this enmity even as recently as the 20th century with Adolf Hitler and his massacre and attempted genocide of the Jews. This enmity will remain until Jesus Christ returns to rule on earth for a thousand years. (coughs) Now, Haman is a descendant of Agag. That is not just a minor detail in this story. I believe this is one of the core elements to understanding Esther the correct way. Agag was king of the Amalekites. We read in Exodus 17, 14 through 16 that the Lord of hosts has said, I am going to wipe out the Amalekites from the face of the earth. I promise I will wipe them out. Now, why was God so angry at the Amalekites? It was because the Amalekites were the first to meet Israel after the exodus out of Egypt. And they would come behind Israel as Israel was fleeing, and they would slay the slow ones, those who were too sick or old or young to keep up with the pack. They were a very wicked people, and God said, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. So he gives this charge, and then we see that this charge has potential to be fulfilled under King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3, we see that uh, Saul disobeys God. He's given the charge, go wipe out the Amalekites, and it's a hard charge. He says, wipe out the men, wipe out the women, wipe out the children, and don't even leave their animals alive. Take no plunder for yourself. I want them gone. Sobering. God takes sin seriously, especially sin against his people. So, Saul fails to do this. Saul keeps slaves. Saul keeps the plunder. Saul keeps the sheep. Worst of all, Saul keeps King Agag alive as a trophy 
Because of this sin, Saul lost his crown, but this sin has far more reaching effects. Instead of Agag suffering a forgettable death in battle, the prophet Samuel cuts him to pieces in front of Saul. Because of Saul's sin, King Agag becomes a martyr whose name rings through the ages. And it rang loud enough that Haman, the Agagite, remembers. He remembers what the Jews did to his king. With that being said, I'm not sure we can say that Mordecai was simply following the law of God when he refused to bow down before Haman, or if he was simply remembering God's promise to wipe these people off the face of the earth. Continuing on, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. He kept on standing upright. He would not bow down. And they tested Mordecai. They tested his words. They told Haman. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone so that they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahuzeris. Mordecai's words were tested and he was proven to be a man of integrity. He wasn't simply a man of talk. He was a man of action. Unfortunately, Haman was the same, a man of action. And he was filled with the spirit of Satan, backed by the spiritual forces of darkness, and he moved against God's people to wipe them out. It's almost as if Satan is saying, I got you, God. He's making moves on the chessboard. Verses 8 through 11, Then Haman said to King Ahuzeris, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the providences of your kingdom. Their laws are different from our laws. They do not obey your laws, king. It is not profit to tolerate them. If it pleases a king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. So the king took off his signet ring from his hand, and he handed it to Haman the Agaite, the son of Hamathda, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. Now the Jews' laws were certainly different from the Persians, but I believe... Haman is slandering the Jews as the Jews lived at peace both in Babylon and Persia with their foreign neighbors. Remember, slander is from the devil. The king is bribed after his costly war with Greece and foolishly gave his signet ring to Haman to do as he pleases with these people without even looking into the matter himself. Remember, God removed the signet ring from Jeconiah and allowed his people to be ruled by a foreign authority. Now, this authority is taking off his signet ring and giving it to an agent of Satan. Devil says, check. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now the couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Not even the pagans could understand this wicked, evil, violent decree. 
Now Mordecai reads the decree and he's thrown into a deep depression. And he's mourning at the king's gate. Ashes are on his head. He's wearing mourning clothes. And so Esther hears about this. And she says, go to Mordecai, clothe him, and ask him what's wrong. Mordecai gives Esther's servant a letter and says, look at what the king is planning on doing with the Jews. You need to go to the king and beg for your people's lives. Queen Esther responds to Mordecai and says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside his inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for over 30 days. Esther has a very reasonable excuse here. Listen, if I do this, I might die. Oftentimes, we know God's commands, we know his edicts, we know what he desires for us to do, and we may even have reasonable excuses not to do it. Plus, the king hasn't called her in 30 days. Wives, imagine that. That would be a little strange. Husbands, I know some of you are thinking, 30 days, what in the world is he doing? Verses 4, 13 through 14. Do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. This is Mordecai's response to Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a faithful response from Mordecai. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Mordecai has three points of persuasion to convince Esther to go before the king. He says, I'm going to make it personal. You will die. You will perish. You will not escape in the king's palace. The Jews will be saved either way. You have an opportunity here to be obedient. And what if, what if God raised you up to this position for such a time as this? So Esther says, all right, if I perish, I perish. I'll go. She says, fast for me for three days and I'll go. Esther came to the correct conclusion that every Christian must come to. The safest place possible for her and God's people is in the sovereign hands of the living God. Esther, has, Esther after three days of fasting, rises to go meet the king. As she approaches his royal throne room, I can only imagine the different scenarios running through her head. She opens the doors to the king's royal throne room and begins to make her way to stand before the king of Persia. The king looks at her for a moment. His expression softens and she finds favor in his sight. He holds out the golden scepter and he welcomes his queen to the throne room. He asks Queen Esther, what do you desire? Up to half the kingdom and I'll give it, and I'll give it to you. And Esther responds and says, I will tell you what I desire, but first would you and Haman please join me for a banquet I've prepared for you tonight, and then I'll tell you. So long story short, the king and Haman, they come to the banquet, and they're drinking, and the time must not have been right. I don't know if, if, if the king and, and Haman had too much or, or, or what happened, or if Esther backed out because of nerves and she was scared, but the king again says, Esther, what is it you want? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And Esther says, 
just one more banquet tomorrow. You and Haman, same thing, and then I will tell you, King Ahuzeris, what it is I desire. So Haman goes out and he's filled with joy. Look at me. Look at how I am prospering. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Nothing will fill Haman. Nothing will fulfill this servant of darkness until he sees the blood of Mordecai running down the streets. Then his wife Zeresh has a great idea. Let a gallows be made, 50 cubits high. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Now that very night, something strange happens. The king cannot sleep. So he has one of his servants bring a book to him. And the servant just so happens to bring the book of memorable deeds. And he just so happens to read about Mordecai the Jew, who warned Esther of the plan to assassinate the king. And the king says, what was given to Mordecai that I might repay him for this great deed? And the servant says, nothing. Nothing was given to him. Just at that moment, a servant walks in the door and he says, hey, Haman, he's here. He's in the court. He's waiting for you. King says, bring him up. King asks Haman, he says, Haman, what would you do to someone who the king desires to bless? And Haman, thinking that the king desired to bless him, says, oh, wow, this is my opportunity. This is my opportunity. This is what I would do. I would clothe this man in royal garments and set a crown on his head. He should be given a royal horse, and one of the king's most trusted servants should parade him through the streets, yelling, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Well, the king really liked this idea. So he said, Haman, go and do all of this. Don't leave a single thing out to Mordecai, the Jew. Haman is filled with fury, yet he obeys the king's command. Afterwards, Mordecai returns to the king's gate, and Haman returns to his home. Haman told his wife and his friends what happened, and they had this warning. If Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Notice the lack of time Haman had to change his mind about Mordecai once he realized what was happening. We're nearing the end of the story. The king and Haman are ushered into the banquet that Esther has prepared, and this is what happens. And on the second day, when they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even half of the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, I, wouldn't have, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with loss to the king. In other words, she's saying, I wouldn't have bothered you about it if it was just slavery. 
King Ahuzerah says to Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. She points across the table. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. See how quickly Haman's honor turned to humiliation and then to full-fledged horror. The king arose as a raging panther with wrath on his face from wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch with Esther. And the king said, will you even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then a servant of the king, one of the eunuchs in attendance, said, moreover, gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. The king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that they had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king was abated. <coughs> On that day, King Ahuzerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther and Mordecai still had a problem to solve. There was still an irrevocable command, an edict of the king, to kill all the Jews. So they came up with a plan. They put out an edict, signed it with the king's signet ring, and said, we are going to uh, prep the Jews and give them the weapons they need in order to defend themselves on this day. And in Esther 9, we see that's exactly what happened. Now, in the 12th month, with, which was the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews killed over 800 men in Susa alone and 75,000 throughout all of Persia completely wiping out any remnant of the Amalekites. Now, what are some takeaways from Esther? I'll do this really quick. I know I'm going over. Big question is, where is God? Where is God? Esther is one of two books in the Old Testament, in the entire Bible, in fact, that do not mention the name of God in any of its verses. Charles Spurgeon quotes, Although the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most conspicuously in every incident which it relates. I have seen portraits bearing names of persons for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them. Think about your child's portrait of yourself. Sometimes you need to know whether it's even a boy or girl. But we have all seen others which required no name because they were such striking likeness that the moment you looked upon them, you knew them. In the book of Esther, as much as in any other part of the word of God, and I had almost committed myself by saying, more than anywhere else, the hand of providence 
is manifestly seen. The providence of God, a.k.a. God is in control, is riddled throughout this book. From the rise of Esther to the annihilation of the Amalekites, we see the secret hand of God at work. Do not think that because you cannot see God or because you are not hearing God, Christian, that he is not still working today. With this question answered, where is God? I'd like to pose a similar question and we'll close. Where are you? Where are you today? Perhaps you're like Haman, an enemy of God. Remember, anyone outside of God's grace is considered his enemy. Says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and that his anger abides on sinners every day. Are you actively working against his plan? Are you so haughty to believe that you can escape the judgment that is to come? God was patient with the Amalekites for over 700 years, but God's judgment came nonetheless. He completely wiped them off the face of the earth just as he has promised, and he has promised that he's sending his son back and blood will be dripping off his garment. A sword will be coming out of his mouth. He's coming to save the saints, but he's coming to judge those who are sinners. Is he coming for you? Are you like the Jewish people who were far from the presence of the Lord? They were a thousand miles from home. Are you far from the temple of God? Are you far from his presence this morning? If so, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Or are you like Esther, afraid to approach the king of kings and petition his name? I promise you, Christian, if you have the spirit of God dwelling within you, you can boldly approach the throne of God. God desires to hold out his golden scepter towards you, just as the wicked king held out his golden scepter towards Esther. And last but not least, Jesus is, greatest, is a greater savior than Mordecai and Esther. Jesus has God's signet ring of, of approval. He does. And we saw that approval. It was stamped after his death when God chose to raise him three days after he died on the cross for your sins. That was a stamp of God's approval. It's like God was taking this signet ring saying, do as you wish, Jesus. Jesus is greater than Esther. Jesus is greater than Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai saved the Jews in a time. Jesus desires to save you for all of eternity. Repent. Trust in the Lord for salvation, and you will be saved today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Esther. We thank you that we can look at it and, and see your providence within it. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to die for our sins. Lord, I just pray that your word, as the prophet Isaiah says, would go out. Many verses were shared this morning, and they would not return void. Lord, do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.